to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast where we try really hard to say what we mean. Today we have Hope, Lindsay, and Kellen. And we are going to... Hey! <laughs> Yay, indeed. Um, today... <laughs> today we're going to talk with you about semantics, and particularly words that have significant meaning to us as socialists. Um, so first, what are semantics? Technically, semantics are defined as the study of relationships between words and how we construct meaning, and basically sheds light on how we experience the world and how we understand ourselves and other people. So because of this agreed upon constructed meaning for words, um, and it so critically shapes both how we see the world and how we work together, language itself is definitely political. The abuse of language as a coercive political instrument is not a new idea by any means. Um, I think we can see like Orwell, for example, talking about it in 1984. Historically, there was a ton of interest in this idea, particularly post-World War II, um, both in the public consciousness and definitely in art at the time. So, you know, sort of like culturally and societally, I think we do acknowledge that words have power, or at least we have in the past. Yeah, for sure. And I was thinking, especially in the current political climate, it seems even more important than ever to talk about language and particularly to be watch, watching for words to be co-opted or corrupted. Um, we, after all, do have enemies both on the right and in the center, I think, who would benefit from either co-opting or corrupting the meaning of words that we hold near and dear. And also, as we work to grow a socialist movement in the U.S., I want to make sure we're avoiding being too jargony without offering definitions because it can make people feel alienated. Oh, totally. Um, I could discuss semantics for hours, so thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. Um, I actually was telling my partner that our topic for this week was semantics, and he goes, oh, your favorite. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) it is. Um, In most real-life debates I find myself in, I'm often accused of arguing semantics because I tend to pick out a specific word or words that are fundamental to whatever we're discussing and push to land on a definition. Spoken like a true lawyer. I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Um, In these conversations, I find myself using the phrase working definition a lot. And by that, I mean the specific interpretation and connotation of a word or a phrase used in a specific context, uh, given that a lot of words have different implications based on the context. Um, This can be frustrating for a lot of people who want to discuss (laughs) the subjects much more broadly. But I found that if we don't agree on the terms of whatever we're talking about, any further agreements we may come to will be based on a misunderstanding. Um, So in order to understand and be understood, I either insist on coming to an agreement on the terms or accepting that we have fundamentally different ideas of what a term means, recognizing or recognize that arguing the concept more broadly will be futile and opt out of that line of discussion. Um, I think a common example of this is probably racism. Um, It has a different dictionary definition than the one used in context of progressive politics. So when we discuss racism in the political sense, it's important to first establish that our working definition is something along the lines of a system of oppression that favors whiteness and not the dictionary definition that was almost certainly written by white people with the bonus privilege of access to higher education. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. 
Yeah. I, um, just to jump in here, <clears throat> excuse me, I have a cold this week. Uh, I also agree that words are hugely powerful. My dissertation topic is about basically the meaning of the word free state and who got to decide what it meant. And it's literally a semantics argument. So I, like Lindsay, am thrilled to have the opportunity to discuss semantics and force, uh, you know, a couple thousand people to listen to me while I do it. Yes. (laughs) So yeah, given all of that, both the shared meaning that words have and also the way that dictionaries give definitions... Um, we thought the show we'd start out with some words that have specific or important meaning to socialists. Uh, we did want to note that this list could be super long. I'm sure there's things that we left out that you would just love for us to give our input on, but we only have an hour show, so we're not going to list them all. Just the ones that we feel like. <laughs> <laughs> so I think a good, a good place to start is probably the word comrade, um, or Conrad to some extremely online folks. You see it a lot. Um, and I love the word comrade. It is so wholesome. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people new to leftist circles might be a little bit freaked out by it because it definitely harkens back to like Soviet Russia <laughs> or something in a lot of people's minds. Um, but I think as is so often the case with stuff on the left that seems unfamiliar or foreign or scary to the newcomer, um, the weariness is misplaced. Comrade means friend. But sometimes it means friends you haven't met yet. It Mm. means brother or sister in the struggle without having to default to gendered language or familial metaphor. I think it's a word that signifies the bond that leftists have with one another by virtue of caring so deeply about the same things and working towards the same goals. So comrade is almost utopian in that sense, I think. Um, And I think it's really beautiful. Yeah, I definitely feel you on that. Um, I personally prefer it, much prefer it to brothers and sisters. I don't know how you both feel about that, Mm -hmm. but I like comrade better. Um, Yeah, I think I agree. I agree as well. Of course, yeah, as Kellen said, it's not gendered. And also I feel like there might be kind of um, a racial component of using the words brothers and sisters that I don't necessarily feel like I should Mm -hmm. Um, co-opt. That's interesting. Comrade is very comfortable for me. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I think we would be remiss if we didn't if we didn't talk a little bit about how loaded this word can be for people who are outside of our circles, too. Um, I think there's a, a lot of people, uh, older people in the U.S. who have a negative association with comrade, for sure. And then I've heard even some um, people like older Europeans that have a really hard time with it when they come here. Um, so... I just think it's important to acknowledge that it does, it's like a, it's a really powerful word in pretty much every sense. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess another term that's important to discuss, especially for people who are newer to leftism, is roses, as in bread and roses, or as in rose Twitter. If we're talking about beauty and socialism, and I think all of us on the show agree that comrade is like a, it's a pretty beautiful word. We definitely can't go without talking about roses. Uh, Rose Schneiderman, an OG socialist feminist, pour one out for the homie, famously said, (laughs) the worker must have bread, but she must have roses too. I think it's worth actually taking a little bit of time to talk about Rose Schneiderman because originally I had in my head misattributed that quote to another OG socialist feminist, the uh, similarly appropriately named Rosa Luxemburg. 
Um, <laughs> Schneiderman was a later labor activist in the United States um, in the early 20th century, which is, you know, a famously terrible time and place to be a laborer. She worked with the Women's Trade Union League, which was this radical and very cool union that mainly served immigrant women in low-paying, tedious, and often dangerous work. So the WTUL was instrumental in getting changes made in New York to eliminate the most dangerous sweatshop conditions. And it was especially vocal after the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire in 9/11 or 1911, which may ring a bell for some of you guys. This is sort of um, a seminal case of just like terrible worker mistreatment. Um, as was the common practice at the time, the Triangle Shirtwaist Company bosses, which of course were all men, um, locked the women, who tended to be poor, illiterate, recent immigrants, um, doing the sewing work in the sewing rooms to prevent them from taking unauthorized breaks. So when the shirtwaist building caught fire, the women couldn't escape. Um, there were really graphic descriptions in the newspapers about how some women literally jumped from the windows, but many, and these are also overwhelmingly young women, um, from sort of adolescent age to teenagers, um, and some older women as well, just burned to death. Schneiderman was one of the most prominent voices in the aftermath of the tragic fire calling for reform. She was also a prominent advocate for women's suffrage. And I, I say all of this because even though we use her words all the time on the left, most of us don't know about her. Um, she firmly believes that not only should workers who she gendered as female, not insignificantly, um, not only should they have their needs met, bread, but they should also have meaning and beauty in their lives as signified by roses. And I love that because I think that's what socialism stands for at its best. It's not, you know, as Hope was saying, it might signify to some outsiders, you know, this drab program that promises everybody an apartment and a concrete building that looks the same as all the other concrete buildings that everybody's forced to live in or, or whatever. <laughs> it's a program that ensures everyone's basic needs are met so that we can all appreciate the beauty of the world and engage in the things that make us feel most human whatever that may mean for us individually. Yeah. Um, can I tie this back into something that's been in the news lately? Yeah, of course. Okay. Uh, Bernie Sanders $700 coat. <laughs> um, <laughs> I know Jabari Breesport uh, tweeted that it's only hypocritical for a socialist to own an expensive coat if we equate socialism with poverty, which is a common misconception to everybody to our right, mm -hmm. I would say. Um, but it's, it's not true. <laughs> we deserve nice things as well as having our basic needs met. And of course, like having a good winter coat when you're out and about in cold places in the winter is a need, but having, I don't know, having a nice one, having nice things is not contradictory to socialism. That's probably one of the most basic examples that we can all think of from, I don't know, the news recently. Yeah, yeah for sure. Totally. I think that the term champagne socialist, which is something that mm -hmm. people may have seen, is it's kind of derogatory in some cases or a little bit tongue-in-cheek when people use it. But I'm actually all for champagne socialism, yeah. which is the mm -hmm. idea that, like, uh, you know, everybody should have really nice things. You know, a champagne socialist 
the term is often used to describe somebody who has like very bourgeois tastes, but like, I don't know. I think, I just think everybody should have really nice things. And there's definitely a conversation to be had about the ability to provide, you know, how much can we provide to everybody? Obviously not everyone can have a private jet and certainly that's not what I don't think any socialists are advocating for. And there's another conversation to be had about socialism in the United States versus socialism globally and sort of how much of our living standards depends upon the subjugation of the global South. And all of that is like sort of, that that's a big conversation that maybe we should have on the podcast. But the basic idea behind Bread and Roses is that, at the very least, we're all entitled to nice and beautiful things. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think really thinking about this through a linguistic lens even more, it seems like when you're saying bread and roses, you're really identifying a physical need, but then also uh, like a sensual, spiritual, or emotional sort of a need with roses. I don't think it's necessarily needs and wants or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, And I was also thinking about, you can kind of draw a line because a rose isn't something necessarily that you own. Um, It's, you know, there's like stop and smell the roses. There's all these ideas with language we have about a rose being something that you kind of enjoy its presence. So it's not, I don't think this is necessarily always about consumption or like entitlement to goods. Although I agree with you, Kellen, that that's something people should be able to enjoy pleasant things. And are entitled to them, but I think it has a lot to do with just giving, making sure that people have the the time and the energy to be able to enjoy things. Yeah, totally. The, the, you know, the mm-hmm. time and the energy to to spend doing. I guess I think I like phrase it in, in, as I was first saying this stuff, like to do whatever makes you feel most human. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily mean that the you know that the state is going to give you give everyone a rose bush, but it does mean that we should have, <laughs> we should have public parks with roses that everyone should be able to enjoy, or that's what it means to me. Right. Mm-hmm. Or people should have you know the time to do their own gardening and, exactly. and plant their own rose bushes, or you know time to embroider a rose if that's you know, what makes you happy. I'm taking up Mm -hmm. embroidery, so this is in my (laughs) mind, but... uh. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's important to recognize that the fact that life is more or should be more than just subsistence is fundamental to socialism. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's a great way of putting it. Very well said. Thank you. (laughs) So our next word is intersectional. Yeah. So Kimberly Crenshaw coined the idea of intersectionality in her 1989 paper, Demarginalizing the Intersection of Race and Sex, a Black Feminist Critique of Anti-Discrimination Doctrine, Feminist Theory, and Anti-Racist Politics, which is a mouthful, um, but I think the really important thing there, well, it's all important, but a really important thing there is a Black Feminist Critique. So this is us explicitly drawing from Black feminist thinkers Um, who, in my opinion, have often been the uh, most sort of rich um, thinkers in terms of defining uh, the direction that the left should be going. But anyway, that's that's neither here nor there. Um, So since 1989 and this paper, it's been a super important theory for people on the left to understand the world around them. The basic idea behind intersectionality is that axes of power intersect, that people are oppressed on the basis of race and gender identity and class and sexuality at the same time rather than individually. Um, And so much of this seems very obvious and intuitive to us today, 
which is a testament to how Crenshaw's ideas have become totally mainstream. But one way to really consider the weightiness and importance and the newness of what she was saying at the time is to consider one of the cases she talked about in her original paper. So like Lindsay, Crenshaw is a legal scholar, (laughs) and she talks about this case in the paper where black women allege discrimination in hiring from General Motors. General Motors' argument was that they were neither racist nor sexist in their hiring, and the evidence they presented was their hiring of black men and their hiring of white women. This Mm. sounds stupid to us today. Um, Like, that's not evidence that the company didn't discriminate against black women, especially because it did not hire black women at all from 1964 to 1970, and then fired all of the black women it hired between 1970 and 1976, according to the case. Sounds like discrimination. But the court actually found in favor of General Motors because legally the idea of intersectionality just did not exist. The court said that GM proved it was not racist because it hired and kept black men on the staff. And GM proved it wasn't sexist because it hired and kept white women on the staff. And intersectionality basically just explains why that's bullshit. And it's important to our movement because it serves as a constant reminder of the fact that policies don't affect everybody the same way. Our solutions should lift up the most threatened among us or they will be bullshit. Mm-hmm. Yep. Amen. So our next word is bourgeoisie. Mm-hmm. And basically, we define that as the class of modern capitalists, owners of the means of social production and employers of wage labor. And this is a place where I could totally see some confusion if this wasn't explained to someone new to socialism. A dictionary of Marxist thought defines the word more thoroughly as the economically dominant class, which also controls the state apparatus and cultural production, stands in opposition to and in conflict with the working class. But between these two classes in modern society, there are also identified intermediate and transitional strata, which Marx refers to as the middle class. So, in contrast to that, a quick Google search of the word produces this definition. The middle class, typically with reference to its perceived materialistic values or conventional attitudes, which is super different. Um, And so, without being clear what we mean, it could sound like we're working against a conventional middle class, which is ridiculous. Yeah, it is hard because the economy has gotten so much more complicated Mm -hmm. since Marx was writing, you know, in the mid-19th century. But that being said, um, we're definitely, I think, agree, I would agree with you, Hope, like it, it can be scary to some people on the outside or people who are sort of dipping their toes in um, to hear this this kind of stuff. Because I think another thing that can be helpful is to think about capitalists as a term that's not just people who are involved in a capitalist system, which is everybody, mm-hmm. but to think of capitalists as Marx would have defined them as the people who own the means of production. Right. And that's sort of a strictly economic term. Bourgeois has these sort of cultural components as well. But the people that we're fighting for are the, the proletariat, which is, it's very, it's most basic people who don't own the means of production, people who are working um, for somebody else, who are laboring but don't control, um, you know, the output of their labor. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it can be hard to, to know exactly what that means in the modern economy, but far and away, that's that's m- most of us. Mm-hmm. 
I was just going to um, say that I think that defining the bourgeoisie as middle class reinforces the idea that socialism is a system that essentially strives for poverty for all. Yeah, um, that's a good So I point. think that, yeah, that's another another reason that defining bourgeoisie as the middle class is um, problematic. Yeah, that's kind of what I was going to say, too, that going back to bread and roses, I think this confusion to some degree is partly responsible for particularly people new to the movement um, or to the left in general feeling like they aren't entitled to enjoy anything anymore or feeling embarrassed (laughs) about the more middle class seeming things that they do. And, you know, how often we have to remind people there's no ethical consumption under capitalism and, you know, it doesn't you don't have to be that extreme to be a meaningful part of this movement. And I think this definition confusion contributes to that. Yeah, that's a really good point. The next word that we are going to talk about is praxis, um, which comes from the Greek word for activity engaged in by free people. Ooh, Um, fancy. (laughs) I did a Google too. Um, (laughs) So we understand it as the process by which we embody or act out theory, or in other words, it's theory with with its work boots on. Um, The dictionary definition of Marxist thought calls it the central concept of Marxism, which I agree with because you can understand theory all day long, but if your actions don't align with the goals of creating a more equitable society through the empowerment of workers, then your Marxism's bullshit. Mm -hmm. Word. (laughs) Does anybody else have anything to say on practice before we move on? I always hear it and I think of that um, meme from when I was in like high school. It's like, how the hell can I make my teammates better by praxis? Not a game, not a game, not a game. We talk about praxis. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's my contribution. Continue. Thank you. Um, so next, uh, we're going to talk about capital, which Marx defines as not a thing, but rather a definite social production relation. Um, basically, it's anything with which you can accrue more capital or wealth under capitalism. So Obviously, money is capital. Um, it's a thing that society has determined constitutes wealth. But another concept I've been learning a bit more about recently is social capital, which is essentially the capital accrued by networking. Um, if you listen to our kindness episode a bit, Communal Sauce talks a little bit about the benefits of social capital um, and how, unfortunately, people tend to leverage it, even within leftist circles, um, in ways that aren't necessarily beneficial for the movement. Mm-hmm. Um Now, social capital can provide you with opportunities for better or higher paying jobs, and it can provide you protection from situations in which you can be taken advantage of, or as we see in cases like Harvey Weinstein and other powerful people who become abusers, it can protect you from the consequences of harmful actions. Um, In even more grim circumstances, though, it can also give you a better chance of meeting crowdfunding goals for things like funeral costs or medical bills. Or starting Um, a podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Um, although starting a podcast it's not, is... It's not grim. Yeah, it's not grim at all. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I just, all I meant was that we benefited for sure from some level of social capital mm-hmm. and oh, absolutely. being part of I think it was mostly Ambria's, but like at this DSA. point we kind of share some. Sorry, yeah. I think I was interrupting you. No, no, no. No, sorry. Yeah, I do think that, like, <clears throat> thinking about the way that capital and social capital work together is important, too. Um, there's layers to that. There's some people who have access to both. There's some people who have to leverage social capital because they don't have as much access to capital. Um, so I think that's important to note too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. 
Like, if one of us was independently wealthy, we wouldn't have done crowdfunding. We would have been like, oh, I'll just pay for this podcast. <laughs> if only. <laughs> um, so the next concept, unless somebody had something else to add. No, go for it. Okay. Um, is labor, which is work that adds value to commodities. Um, it's traditionally defined as work sold by workers for money. Um, but more modern approaches have expanded it to include things like the reproductive labor we've spoken about since episode one. Um, reproductive labor, of course, is everything that must be done in order to maintain life outside of what employers are willing to compensate. Uh, so that includes things like cooking and cleaning and childcare. Um, but I also want to specify that emotional labor, which is essentially the management of one's feelings in order to increase productivity, is also labor, and that it's integral to both wage labor and reproductive labor. Yes. Totally. Yeah, I just want to say that I feel like I understand some of these concepts way better than I did mm-hmm. like 20 minutes ago because, Lindsay, you're very good at explaining. You really Marxism. are. Thank you. So, so thank you for that. <laughs> I apparently didn't have a working definition for bourgeoisie a few minutes ago, so um, thanks for that. Wow. <laughs> this is a learning and friendship adventure. <laughs> All right, so we're going to take a break from all this learning and rest our noggins, and so you guys can listen to some sweet tunes. Yeah! Yay!
So now that we've talked a little bit about the meaning and history of some keywords, uh, I thought we'd take some time to talk about how language can serve as a barrier to access to socialism or organizing in general for people. And I've definitely seen firsthand it's a bad idea to assume either that people know or don't know things. Um, I think they're, they can be equally harmful. So providing access to definitions and making that available just seems like a really easy, at least a first step. I know that would have helped me a lot when I first got more involved in organizing. I was really surprised by a lot of the terms people were using. And I think even Comrade at first was surprising. And like I saw it in one email and was like, is that just something this person says? Or is that something, (laughs) can anybody Mm -hmm. say that? How do I say it? Yeah, I, I wasn't sure if it was just a few people who I was around that were talking like this or if it was part of a bigger thing. Um, And then over time, I think I was able to get a better idea of what words I could try using and when and how. But I think I felt unsure for probably a good year some of the time. Wow, yeah. Um, Especially Mm -hmm. like in a roundtable kind of discussion or where there were usually uh, guys who were academic and sort of overbearing. I was just really afraid to use it incorrectly. Mm, Um, Right. Because I feel like it would have invalidated the content of what else I had to say. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I, that makes total sense. Yeah, I remember having to do a pretty significant amount of self-education, which, to be honest, was just a lot of constant frantic Googling along the way. And <laughs> I think in retrospect, it did make me feel like I wasn't a part of things. And if I hadn't had a partner who was already involved, I think it might have been enough to get me to stop participating. So thinking about this, I was curious to know from you both, how did you learn what things meant? How did you feel? What does this say about how accessible socialism is to people? And are there words you still feel unclear about? Um, Honestly, I think the language kept me from first from identifying as a socialist and later from engaging in socialist circles because there was this whole separate vocabulary that I couldn't wrap my head around and it made me feel really stupid. Um, And as we discussed earlier, there are often distinct definitions for concepts in socialism that you can't really glean from a dictionary definition. So I didn't have enough of the contextual background to properly research them on any deeper level either. Um, So just a lot, a lot of time wasted feeling like an idiot and like I couldn't engage as a socialist or even identify as one because there were things I didn't know and things that I didn't feel comfortable asking. Um, After a while, though, I did find friends who were active organizers whom I became comfortable enough around to admit that I didn't understand what they meant when they said something. Mm -hmm. So getting to a point where I could say, I don't know what X means, or could you tell me what you mean by X was extremely integral to my development as a socialist. And I think it really took just, well, for one, getting comfortable with people, but for another, just getting used to the idea that I don't have to know everything already. Mm-hmm. Um, being being comfortable looking a little stupid. Um, but I think it's good for everybody to be able to explain difficult concepts, especially as we try to grow the movement. So to people who are new to the movement, uh, you shouldn't worry about being a burden by asking for definitions. Yeah, um, yeah. Any comrade worthy of being called a comrade won't make you feel less intelligent for not automatically understanding words or uses of words that are specific to socialism. Um, Because everybody who knows them had to learn them from somewhere. Yeah, I think that's so true. And actually, I I think this conversation itself is really important. Mm -hmm. Um, Like admitting publicly that, you know, people are not born from the womb 
having memorized all of the first volume of Capital, we we all have to learn. And some of us are red diaper babies who've had this sort of implanted, <laughs> you know, in our brains as we, you know, learn the words for cat and dog. Maybe we also learn comrade, but that's not the case for many of us. I don't actually think it's the case for anybody on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think even just in talking about that, that is breaking a taboo that mm-hmm. shouldn't exist. And in some ways, it's probably a, you know, a self enforced taboo. We're always going to be afraid of looking dumb, mm-hmm. I think. But it's the job of people in the movement to make this space as welcoming as it can be. Yeah. And part of doing that is like not reinforcing this idea that, you know, some people are the smart people who have all the answers. Mm-hmm. And until you're on that level, you should just sort of be quiet and do as you're mm-hmm. told. Yeah, I've definitely, that's kind of why I mentioned not assuming that people know or don't know things, because conversely, I've also seen people overcorrect and make assumptions based on, you know, whether it's going into a certain community to do organizing, or you're trying to write something, you know, targeted at like a different kind of, like people of color, for example, or whatever. Um, I've, I've heard people say like, oh, we should maybe do this in a more plain sounding way which has its own biases there. Um, you should mm-hmm. never assume what people know or you know are capable of understanding because I just think that's always a bad look. So that said, like, I think the best you can do, as you're saying, is to make it a comfortable environment, be explicit that people should ask questions, and then also make sure that they're... I mean, it's not hard to do like a, de- a sheet with definitions or like a glossary um, as part of your organizing documentation. Mm-hmm. I think that that mansplaining and like white splaining are two things that would be really easy to fall into if you just avoided um, assuming people know words because a lot of people, yeah, a lot of people do have a foundation and can pick it up based on context. But like you said, Hope, I think it's very important to make sure that people know they can ask questions mm-hmm. if they don't know what a word means. Um, yeah, so just not dumbing it down too much, not assuming that the person you're speaking to is an mm-hmm. idiot um, is important, but also making sure that they know you won't think they're an idiot if they don't know what a word means. Right. Um, and not assuming yeah. conversely that all white men know all the answers because we know that y'all don't know all right. the answers. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you guys want to add anything else? I don't know what ontology means, but um, that's it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so if anybody, yeah. Does anybody have a definition for that? Because uh, I don't know. I don't even think I've seen it used anywhere. Can can use it in a sentence? I saw it in like a, oh God, it was something about this, this woman I'm friends with on Facebook said something, she was talking about like witchcraft and I know she's a leftist. And so it was kind of, it was in the context of witchcraft and materialism. And then she brought up something about ontology. <sighs> And I felt like an idiot, and I just I just tuned out of the conversation from from there on. I was like, I can't engage with this. It's really too bad um, Ambria is not on the podcast this week because I feel like this is something she would know. Totally, she yeah. knows a lot about like philosophy and stuff. Um, and I promised myself in ninth grade after my history teacher took us on a brief detour down like Socrates lane that I would never study philosophy in my life (laughs) Uh, and that has really hampered my ability to like understand a lot of what people talk about so like if any high schoolers are listening some promises you make yourself in ninth grade like I will never take another physics class 
Mm-hmm. That's fine. I made that promise to myself and I'm doing just great. But philosophy, maybe maybe do that one. Uh-huh. Um, as far as I know, ontology is about categories and what things are and mm-hmm. how to group things together. Um, and that okay. is all that I know. Well, that's a better definition than I had a minute ago. But <laughs> I just wanted to get something on the record. I don't know what a word means, and I've heard it used in leftist or left-ish contexts. Hey, so. hey listeners, <laughs> tweet us with your definitions of ontology. Thanks. And that's a word that I didn't even know that I didn't know. So that's even many more layers of not knowing something. <laughs> yeah, that's the problem, I think. A lot of the words I don't know, I don't know that I don't know them. Until I stumble across them in some context and just have to tune out because it's too much yeah yeah well I think that and that I mean this is you know on one hand I'm, I'm like listening to us have this conversation sort of dissociating and thinking about you know there's going to be somebody listening to this who's like a total know-it-all that's like oh my god I cannot believe I've listened to this podcast like I'm anything I was paying them on Patreon like I'm removing it now because they don't know what apology <laughs> means um but on the other hand, I think that having these kinds of conversations publicly, I kind of said this before, but I think that's, it's like really important um, to admit that there's a lot of stuff that like individually we do not know or understand or haven't read about because we promised ourselves we weren't going to take any more philosophy classes. Yeah. And also recognizing that like we can learn from each other as comrades, as good comrades, um, and that part of the movement is like, building each other up and like understanding other people's I don't even want to say weaknesses but sort of lack of knowledge lack of experience and filling in where that's necessary so I hope anybody listening to this that knows what ontology is is thinking about it that way instead of being a douchebag about it (laughs) (laughs) that's very well said (laughs) yeah thank you oh my gosh Um, I don't know I think and acknowledging that you don't know something is it's a form of vulnerability and so it's very important to to treat people who who admit to not knowing things with care because you know you don't want to make them feel like they can't come to you asking for information that you have like be a good resource yeah yeah (laughs) like be someone people can come to when they don't understand things and want to yeah i think vulnerability that's a good transition to uh, another topic we wanted to discuss. Uh, yes. Yeah, so since we were on the subject of semantics and linguistics, we want to take a minute to explain something you may have heard us doing on the podcast, and we've talked a little bit about, I think, on social media too. But it usually goes something like this. Somebody will say something like, can we get lunch somewhere with vegetarian options? I don't eat meat. Sorry. No, Sorry. Hey guys, uh, sorry that I'm late for the call. I was making coffee and then I spilled it all over the floor and then my cat started trying to drink it and I feel like that's really unhealthy. So I know that we got together to talk at 9, but I know it's 9.05 right now and I'm just so sorry. No sorry. No sorry. I know I said that I'd be on this episode, but I something came up with school. Like I have so much homework and I really can't make time in my schedule this week. I'm really sorry, but is it okay if I back out? No, no sorry. sorry. Uh, oh, I just, I had something to say here, but I guess like, um, you can go first. I'm sorry. No, sorry. So we noticed when we all got together for the live show that we were saying sorry to each other a lot in conversation <laughs> about things that no one should need to apologize for. 
And we just felt like we've been so conditioned to seem accommodating that this just comes out all the time. And in an effort mm-hmm. to correct this habit, we just started saying no sorry to each other. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I still have a hard time not saying sorry in my day-to-day life, but I'm much more aware of it now when I do because we've started doing this. Um, and I think it comes from like my trying to be very mindful of my impact on others. And in many ways, just because I have really bad clinical anxiety, I don't know how not to be mindful of how I impact others. Um, so I have a lot of hangups when it comes to taking up space or having needs that can't be met without additional consideration. Um, but taking up space and needing things are two fundamental character characteristics of existing as a three-dimensional living being. It doesn't <laughs> indicate wellness that I feel the need to apologize for being who and what and where I am. Mm-hmm. Um, so to me, no sorry feels like a direct confrontation of an insidious form of self-denial that doesn't serve me or really improve anyone else's lives in any way. Yeah. So I really appreciate that about this group. Yeah. Yeah. We um, we got a message on Twitter from someone named Kim Lemkel. Um, shout out to Kim. Hope I am pronouncing your name right. If not, please publicly correct me. Uh, about the way that women express themselves and communicate with one another. She mentioned that it was my interview with my mother that made her think of one particularly feminine tick, which is nervous laughter after making a substantive point, which mm-hmm. um, I think can work as a defense mechanism, sort of like insulating yourself from potential criticism that might tell you you're wrong or worse, you're taking yourself too seriously. Um, I think take, saying sorry all the time is just another iteration of this sort of constant self-consciousness women are forced into basically from birth. Um, yeah. We're made to be so aware of the space that we take up in the world, like Lindsay said, which is, you know, why man spreading, not woman spreading is a thing. Um, and we're also so quick to apologize, like casually, almost instinctively, if we feel like we have taken up space not intended for us, literally or figuratively. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, it's true, we definitely need to apologize. And it's important to do that. You know, saying sorry and meaning it is really can be really important in any meaningful relationship, whether it's with a partner or a friend or a family member. But that's pretty much never the case with the coven. You know, we're saying sorry mm-hmm. for things like being busy or spilling coffee um, that are either just accidents of life or, you know, the result of other responsibilities. And we all understand that. And I think generally speaking, people who are, you know, comrades will understand that sometimes these things happen. So between Mm -hmm. us, it's no sorry. Totally. I had to get that one in because Laura (laughs) isn't here this week. We miss you, Laura. This is the first episode she's missed, which is crazy. We hope you're enjoying your weekend, but we miss you. Um, And I wanted Mm -hmm. to also say that I found that doing this and trying to be more mindful of not saying sorry needlessly to you all um, has forced me to be more creative in situations where I think I used to just say sorry. Um, So like instead of saying, so sorry, I haven't done the thing I said I would do, I'll say something like, I haven't done that thing I said I would do, but I'll do it today and I can help with something else if you need. Which I think actually is better communication. It makes everybody feel better all Mm -hmm. around. I'm still acknowledging me not doing this was an inconvenience to you, but I think it's a little bit more proactive. 
which is a really an improvement, I think. Um, and I also know it makes me feel a little sad when people apologize for things I would happily accommodate. So when one of you is like, oh, you know, I need to get a snack before we record. I'm sorry, I'm hungry. That makes me feel a little sad because I want you to eat. I don't want you to be uncomfortable. <laughs> I don't want you to suffer. So I think there's some of that too. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. I think so much of this this episode has been about just like communication and how to communicate with other humans. And it's funny that we are so bad at it as a species in so many ways. Um, My partner and I have just started watching the Mindy Project. Uh um, And the show is just basically an extended period of people refusing to communicate with one another. And if they just said what they thought, nothing would happen on the show because everything would be resolved. (laughs) And I was thinking about it as we were getting ready for this episode. And just how important it is, especially on the left, as we're working for something that I think is incredibly noble, um, Mm -hmm. that we communicate openly with each other and, you know, have good faith in one another. Um, And I think that just this idea of communication is really integral to being like the best leftists that we can be, Mm -hmm. being open and honest and kind. Mm Absolutely. Y'all are so smart. I just love listening to you. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So I think that's it for this week. Uh, As always, we encourage you to follow us on Twitter, um, support us on Patreon, rate us on iTunes. And also we have new merch up on our website, uh, which we're doing pre-orders for. Super yay. Um, So the website is seasonofthebee.com. There's a button there for pre-ordered merch. So I think that's it, and we will talk to you next week. Bye. Yeah. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. Love you. you.